This is a podcast from the Queen City Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. My name is Logan, and that, of course, means you are listening to another episode of the Crowncast, and I get to rapid-fire that off. And when I'm rapid-firing it off, I am reminded that I'm going to have to rapid-fire stats about games because we don't have one game, we have two games, and we do not have one co-host. We have two co-hosts. So let me rapidly announce Ewan. Hello, Ewan. Hello. And Josh. Hello, Josh. Hello, hello. I flipped it on you guys. Normally, I introduce Josh first, and I wanted to see if I would catch Mm. Ewan, like, out you know but he, he was ready for me professional ready yep. for anything yep <laughs> yeah. uh we are we are the highest class of professionals here especially on the wednesday podcast where we do all the tactics and analytics of games that uh we we already did the emotion for now we get to like talk to you about what really happened and what really happened for charlotte fc versus orlando was anything but professional because of Orlando. Uh, I I know that I went on to the post react and I said some not so nice things about Orlando. Mostly, I said things about uh, the fact that they have no defense, that their only method of stopping people from putting the ball in the back of their net is to uh, feel like someone breathed on them and then for them to roll around crying as though they had been shot. Uh, Josh, am I being too aggressive towards Orlando, or is this actually their defensive structure? Uh, I don't actually think that you are being too aggressive. This feels like something that has happened often when we've played Orlando. Um, It's very frustrating because you kind of watch these games and you know it's going to happen. You know that when these guys try to shepherd a ball out, if they can't, they're going to fall over. You know that when they're trying to hold the ball up, they're going to fall over. Um, I think that this is very much a part of that team's setup. It is also frustrating that we don't seem to learn that. I mean, it's a hard (laughs) thing, I think, to like figure out in game because you're used to playing. You know, this is a physical contact sport. Um, (laughs) But it it is something that we just we don't adjust to. Um, I the last thing I will say about it is that I kind of admire uh, the guy who is involved in a lot of it for Orlando. I think his name is Schlegel. Um, he seems like a worse version of Pepe, the old center back to me, the Portuguese center back, um, in that he's just a n- not very nice guy. Let's keep this PG. Um, but he's obviously not as good as, as Pepe was. But he he has some dark arts in him. But as we can see, he also can give away stupid things. Um, this team, I, I, I think it's just something that they do. And I hope that next time we see them, we just let them fall over without touching them. That'd yep. be very nice. I I personally think that if you're a neutral in MLS soccer, like if you're one of those people who's just tuning in, you haven't decided to fandom yet, please don't pick Orlando. You're going to be miserable. <laughs> but not, not that I can say anything. But I think the most entertaining game for the, like, quote-unquote neutral is either the teams that are really good or it's New York Red Bulls versus Orlando. Because I, I really think that you have the potential for great theatrics in Orlando <laughs> versus New York Red Bulls. And you may not watch a soccer match, but you will get entertainment. And if you can't play the game, at least they're entertaining the people uh, now that now that we've talked about that, like really in depth 
tactical analysis of Orlando. Uh, I want to get into some stuff that I feel like actually is tactical and important about our game against Orlando. <laughs> and that is I'm, I'm on the Breck Diagrada train. I'm on the train. I have, I have sailed away with the train. The train goes through the ocean. Do not overthink it. This, this guy has come into the left side of our field, and he's such a flexible, speedy, intricate piece that in two games, in my opinion, he somehow became irreplaceable in my mind. Keep in mind, there are people who've been playing in this team, one of them we're going to talk about later, uh, who have had way more than two options in this team and haven't found a way to connect and link the team the same way. There are external factors to this. As Ewan will rightly point out, uh, there are, are things that this team is doing differently now in the way we're set up in structure that help us maybe fall in love with some of these attacking players. But Brecht has activated the left side of our team in a way that I did not know was possible. And there are just players in the world who, who make everyone around them better. When Brecht was in the team for a game and a half, every single person around him was better. Everyone who touched the ball, everyone who combined with him, everyone who was in the spaces was better. They had more space to get to. They had more time on the ball. Passes were to their feet or to where they were going. This guy has shocked me. And as it was happening, I was just like, well, that's, you know, he's doing quite a good job. And then I watched Justin Miram come in. And I, I want to be clear, and I will let you guys get a, a say in Diagra here. I want to be clear. I don't think Miram is a bad player. I don't think Justin Miram is even a bad or worse player. I just think he's a different piece. And we saw some of what happens when a, a piece just really fits there in between Derek Jones and Carol Schroederski. You uh, and do you want to get in on this? Do you want to talk Diagra? Do you want to talk about you know why Miram is different? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I agree with you on on Diagra in terms of how impressive he's been. I mean, it also should be mentioned that he's not even really playing in his best position. Um, he's been playing out on the left side uh, so far with us, and his best position is is playing as one of the eights. Obviously, we seem to have a quite a lot of players now who uh, who can play in that area, but we want Diagra in the side, so he's playing on the left side. Um, I think one of the reasons in particular why he looks so good is because stylistically how many players we have playing further up the field and to navigate that clutter is a hard thing to do and he's just so tidy he's such a great connector that he makes everything look so much better because he has those skills that a traditional eight will have being able to play on the half turn good scanner receiver can play to either side it's really helpful having it in that position having him in that position and the version of a left winger that we're playing suits him pretty well even though I would like to see him get the opportunity in midfield at some stage I think he'd be even more brilliant there and that role that is so perfect for him on the left side that we've kind of you know made for him perfectly is why someone like Merrim comes in who like you mentioned is not a bad player just a different player and can't quite do it so well he's not exactly a connector he needs to be playing wider and then coming inside with the ball onto his right foot he's looked good for Charlotte this season in the different version of what playing left wing in this team has looked like that was more tailored to him. And that's why maybe you see him come in and it, it looks like a bit of a struggle sometimes. And 
he doesn't look quite as impressive because he's not as tailored to that role and they wouldn't have been uh, expecting him to have come in at the stage when he did. So that's where you get, you know, our formation hasn't really changed and those are two players playing on the left wing of that formation. But the roles of what they're being asked to do are so different, which is why maybe you see a bit more of a struggle for Merrim there. So I want to I want to ask you just this one really quick, and that is because he is, you know, in theory, a better left eight. Is that the reason that we saw? Because we saw DJ in the most most recent game struggle. Is that the reason that DJ looks so good is that he was able to pass off the offensive creative responsibilities to that left winger coming inside and vacating the space out for Carroll to play on the left? Because, you know, essentially that movement of him moving shallow and inside to be creative opened Carroll up on the attacking left was in my notes. And I want to know if you saw the same thing. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely carrying the creative burden of of that side of the field um, for a lot of the game. I think because Derek Derek Jones playing as in that eight position is not some, something that anyone had on their predictions in terms of where he would end up playing. But what are you talking about? when you... we called that we called that years ago, <laughs> five it's years not... ago, we were like Derek Jones definitely in that position. Yeah, well, he's played he's played further up the field before, but not quite as high up the field in this position. It's kind of. You know, it, it, like I say, it's not something anyone would have predicted. But him doing it with Diagra in the role that he's in, it's still not what I'd ideally like to have, you know, to have Jones in that position. But with Diagra there and with the plan that we set out with, I can swallow it and say, okay, this does make sense as a setup with those two players performing those exact roles. Yep. Uh, I like him. I know this is going to be another one of those players that I'm going to be biased against. I like him. Uh, <laughs> and I'm going to, I'm going to, step on a little bit because I have players I'm I'm a little biased towards and you and you have players that you're a little biased towards and Josh you like Enzo Capetti and I do Enzo Capetti finally won a penalty I know it was what what happened who did he pay (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure at this point with his reputation he would even be able to pay someone for it I think it feels like the the cards are stacked against Enzo amongst fans opponents referees everything out there um Enzo is just such a divisive person I I think I think I like him because I don't have as many issues with his uh theatrics as some of the other fans out there will have um in this particular case I I think that let's first and foremost say I think that this is a penalty. I saw some question, some people online questioning whether it was. Is it the harshest, most nailed-on penalty you'll ever see? Probably not. Is Enzo kind of looking for it? Probably because Enzo always feels like he's looking for for a penalty. Um, but I also think we have to give some credit to Enzo in this. Um, I, I believe it's Scott Arfield who is who misses a header. Um, that he's trying to redirect into Enzo's path. And rather than just sort of being caught flat-footed, Enzo is the first to react to the misheader. And it's really that that quick sprint into that area where um, Schlegel, I believe it is, doesn't even really see Enzo coming and sort of tries to clear the ball and ends up hitting Enzo instead of the ball and, and giving away the penalty, which Enzo uh, must also be said puts away very nicely the the goalkeeper guesses the right way but it's a very well taken penalty anything short of that side net and it's probably getting saved and then we're having a whole nother conversation about enzo 
Um, but, you know, this is... I, I think Enzo deserves, just deserves more time. And I know that he has rubbed people the wrong way from the beginning, but I would just encourage everyone to watch what that entire team of Orlando did. I would encourage you to check out some other MLS games and see what other players are doing. And you will see that Enzo's antics are antics, but they are not really that out of the ordinary. And he does have real skills that he can bring to this team. Big questions are around whether those skills fit with some of the other players that he plays with or we want him to play with. But that's half this team. And so I think if you judge Enzo just based on who he can be as a player, I think that there's a lot to like with him. I I've just now had the thought that Enzo Capetti is like a toxic government that he like he like puts out giant headlines to like piss people off and make people mad all the while doing like the real hard steady work to make actual changes that nobody sees because they're all focused on him like you know at all the theatrics and stuff um that's the compliment that I'm giving to Enzo Capetti by the way that's that's me that's me saying this is this is what he's doing well um, congratulations, Enzo Capetti, and your toxic government form. Uh, and I, I will, I will say, the penalty is incredible. It's such a well-struck penalty. Uh, it's one of those you mentioned it. It's it's perfectly in the lower left. It's hit hard. The simple fact of the matter is, no keeper in the world is saving that ever. If you can do that uh, into both corners a hundred times out of a hundred, you're scoring a hundred penalties in a row. Because unless the keeper can freely cheat to one side because he knows it's coming, you cannot get, no one can get to that corner of the goal fast enough. Very, very, very well taken from him. Uh, he does have a, a, a bit of a, a je ne sais quoi about his ability to cause trouble, and we're going to get to that later. But first, I'm going to go to Ewan because Ewan, we looked like we'd won it with this we all took a deep breath and said ah we've won it and then we didn't win it what happened yeah this is obviously a really bad goal to concede <laughs> given you know i say given the circumstance you don't want to be conceding a goal like this ever and i think this is something which goes back quite a while and i think it's actually something that we spoke about uh, on a podcast like a long time ago maybe like 6 7 weeks ago that the height of our defensive line for set pieces sometimes is incredibly deep and it's incredibly deep for this goal. And for me, it's kind of the reason why this goal happens because the space in between uh, the defenders and the goal line and the goalkeeper and the players themselves is so short that it kind of brings with it the indecisiveness of who should be dealing with it. When you play the the line, when you have a higher line for a set piece, there is almost a little bit more clarity about it. And when you spread the players out between it a little wider, there's a bit more clarity in terms of a keeper can be more sure whether the ball should be theirs or shouldn't. The defenders can be more clear as to whether it's their ball to deal with or the man next to them. It just brings about more clarity with it. So I think the way that we set up for this goal is really the reason why the goal happens. And I've been trying to figure out, because like I mentioned, this is something which has been going on for a while, why we set up like this. And the only real reason I can come up with for it has to be goalkeeper related. They have to be doing this because they're not confident that if they do play a little bit further out and have the line higher, 
that any ball that should be uh, should be uh, Kalina's is going to be Kalina's in actual fact. So that's, I mean, that's the only thing I can come up with as to why they play this deep because it causes a lot of unnecessary problems and it causes an unnecessary problem for this goal because it ends up with the ball going in the net and the whole team looking around at each other as to, you know, was that your ball? Was that my ball? A lot of confusion. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see sort of where we go now long-term with our set pieces uh, and how we defend them, whether we keep this low line or whether we make adjustments off the back of this goal. Yeah, this one kills me. I'll be honest. There's five people who could all deal with this ball. None of them do. Kills me. And I can't. It's one of those where I don't feel like, for me, analyzing it any deeper than you have helps anyone other than for me to just say you can't. You can't do that in in the top-tier league of any country. Um, But if the MLS wants to grow, you can't do that. I'll move along because I want to sort of wrap up on uh, Enzo and his ability to acquire a yellow card in minutes of of playing the game. This his his ability to go out and cause trouble on a, on a football pitch is is special, and I do think he he kind of gets away with one. There's a VAR check on Enzo late in the game that is potential violent conduct. And I can see this in two ways, so I'm going to go to both of you and see if you guys can convince me one way or the other. I can see him going, I don't think anyone's looking. I'm going to let my momentum bring me back with a pretty high elbow, and if I happen to take somebody out, not a big deal. I don't mind sending a message. Uh, I can also see him in this position being like, hey, I'm going to keep my arm up to protect myself and seeing the Orlando player take that as an opportunity to run his throat into uh, Enzo's elbow. I can see both, and that's why once the the yellow card is given, I think it's good that it stands, because I I think you could reasonably argue either way, so they have to go with the call on the field. Josh, was this violent conduct for you? It was borderline. My theory about why Enzo gets away with a yellow is because Schlegel is the instigator of this. This is what I was talking about when I said he was a Pepe light and a, and a dark arts tried try hard. Um, he is actually pushing in the lead up to this. He pushes Enzo and it's not at Enzo's throat, but it's kind of high on the chest. And by now, everyone knows Enzo. They know his his temper. And so it's smart from a from that perspective, from an Orlando side, to be like, hey, let's see if we can't get this guy wound up even more than he normally is. And so Enzo is definitely looking to to give a little bit back. And I think that Schlegel... I think Schlegel meets his elbow where Schlegel wants that elbow to be. And I think the only reason that Enzo gets away with this is because when they look back at it, they see Schlegel as the instigator. And my theory is they say, well, Enzo gets the yellow. He didn't instigate it. It'd be harsh to give him the red. We'll call it. We'll call it done. No one was seriously injured or anything like that. Um, This is the one area where I do think that the concerns about Enzo are legitimate. This is a stupid play at this time in the game to do that. Like, let the guy push you. Don't do that. And if you're going to do it, just be better at it. I mean, geez, like, just be better. <laughs> just get good. Uh, Ewan, uh, thoughts on why Enzo Capetti should get good? <laughs> um, I, I can't believe this wasn't a red card. <laughs> I really, <laughs> I really, I, like, I couldn't believe 
once they went to VAR that they looked at MLS, it. baby. I know. <laughs> I like, I, I honestly, I couldn't believe it that they went all the way through the check and everything and then just, and then went with a yellow. It just, it seemed so obvious that it was coming. Um, I mean, it's just, like you mentioned, it's just, it's too easy to get under the skin of, it seems like. It's just too easy to irritate. And this whole 20, 25 minute cameo from Capetti overall was just like so equally like hilarious and typical. Like he has the kind of dive for the, to win the penalty. Then he takes the penalty and it's a really good penalty. And then he has this moment where, you know, he, he just, why give the ref the opportunity to make the decision? Whether it's a red, whether it's a yellow, it's stupid to give, especially when you've come on, you've scored, you're trying to gain some momentum back yourself. To give the officials the chance to send you off for something like that, whether it is a yellow or whether it's not, or whether it's a red, it, it, it just, it was so stupid and you kind of just left scratching your head as to how he could do something like that and be so easily irritated when it's so obvious they were trying to get under his skin. Yep. And that my friends, is Enzo Capetti. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I do, I want to talk briefly about the fact that Charlotte FC is more fun to watch in these last three games. I have said a couple times now that I was really losing love for the team when we were in that super sterile, couldn't find anything, never had an attack, but also somehow were terrible at defending. And I said actively that I wanted this team to be like Brighton who I think I'm going to have to adjust because they now look like quite good at everything, no matter what they're doing. I wanted the, the team to be a team that was willing to go out and attack and wanted to make creative, interesting opportunities. And if we gave up two big chances a game on the counter, we gave up two big chances a game. We have become that. So I, I don't know if they just like heard my voice and went, ah, yes, Logan has spoken. But, but we, have, we have become that. And I've really enjoyed watching it uh so i am going to go let's go you in on this one first why is this team more fun what is the the actual reason um for me i think the reason why this team is more fun for people to watch and why there's you know a bit a bit more of an open aspect to them is the off-ball stuff has changed not majorly but it has been tweaked uh in a way that is having a major effect where it before was quite hybrid, uh, whilst leaning towards man-to-man, whereas now it's gone full man-to-man. It's a full man-to-man press in the first phase and pretty much in the second phase of build-up for the opposition. Um, and, and what that does and why that is having an effect in, in a fun way is kind of twofold. One, it just creates more openness, even if you're you know suffering as a result, you're being pulled around by the opposition. Sometimes if a midfielder knows that they're being man-marked, they'll just go stand away from the play and that'll create a massive gap in the middle of the field, which can either mean that the opposition is attacking a load of space or if you're able to win the ball back, that now you have a load of space to get into as a part of um, sort of, you know, playing in transition in the attack. So it creates opportunities in that way if the if the opponent wants to lean into it. But also man-to-man pressing is just generally the most effective way to win the ball in a press. We've spoken before about sort of man-to-man versus zone pressing. Zone is is more likely to make the opposition make bad passes, which then you can get on the end of, or, you know, make or, or play long a little bit more often because they're not being pressured. Um, man-to-man pressing is more direct winning the ball, like a midfielder chasing down the man who they are man-marking. 
and just you know nicking the ball off them and bringing it forward and that's obviously more exciting as a transition moment than getting the opposition to play the ball long and then trying to win the header with the center backs so for me the stuff which has made us more exciting in mainly comes from that out of possession tweak that we've done um that has those main two reasons for being more exciting it's just creating more openness uh, and it's just helping us more in, in it's helping us do more in what is probably for most people the most exciting phase of the game which is high up ball winning transition yep uh josh you want to get in on this one yeah so that was a very in-depth and well articulated way to say what i'm gonna say which is i like goals and shots and that's why it's more fun <laughs> i would much rather um i would much rather tie or lose a game by giving up some goals than this sort of just like zero zero one zero type of thing that we were doing for a while right um first and foremost i want to win games but if you're a team that's struggling to win games i at least want to be entertained because that's the whole point of this this thing that we call sport is to be entertained um and so yeah it might leave us more open yeah it might cause you know it's not a it's not something that's probably sustainable at a high level but at the very least it is making these games enjoyable to watch because we are finally getting shots and goals and that's the only thing that i care about when it comes to this see i'm i'm gonna argue with you excuse me because i think it is sustainable at this high level Uh, i think that you can go out and you can be a team that attacks really attacks and and knows that you're going to give up two super good chances a game. And you can go and you can score two goals every game in the MLS. Now, I understand that there are some other leagues in the world you probably can't get away with this. But in the MLS, you can go and you can find a way to score two goals a game. As a really high-press, attacking, fun, dynamic side to watch. And in most of your games, you're going to give up one. In a couple games, you're going to give up two. And every now and then, you'll give up three. And if you average out two goals per game, you are in the playoffs and probably in the hunt to be a very, very good team in the MLS. Now, like I said, when you go over to La Liga, when you go to the Premier League, some of those teams are built well enough that they can just absolutely slaughter teams that do this. I don't think that that team is in the MLS. I think that you can play this football and be successful. Um, Because this is all stuff that sort of fits across the Nashville and the Orlando game, we're kind of putting it in the middle and you and I'm going to go to you because we've talked about the fact that Adilson Milanda, we're sort of seeing the best of him. In this system, he's been left as a big space player, and he's kind of just been told, everything that the light touches behind our defensive line is your domain. <laughs> and, yep. and you're going to be the guy <laughs> who runs back and, and wins all of the duels. And he's done a really, really good job of that. Uh, you want to talk about Adil Samalanda's role and whether or not it, it is, you know, good and sustainable? Yeah, I mean, they've they've definitely kind of profiled the right guy for this role in, in terms of Adil Samalanda. It's a, someone who can eat up a lot of space pretty quickly. Um, yeah, he's he's doing the best job he can in terms of trying to keep chances down in the role that he's doing. And that's it's a big, big ask. Like we spoke at the start of the season about how much is being put on his plate in terms of how much how high up they wanted him to press in one of our former pressing systems earlier in the season, how much ground he then had to cover recovering that. 
And now it just seems like we kind of just put more and more on his plate throughout the season and and see how much we can depend on him. Um, because you're right, there's three games in a row now where a big chance, uh, or at least a big opportunity, they didn't all result in uh, in in shots, and one of them was offside. Um, big opportunities for the opposition to get us in transition. Because whilst Melander's good at this role, he isn't a superhero. He there's only so much he can do. He can try and get in between two players if they're up there. He can try and restrict as good a shot opportunity as possible for a player. But yeah, there's only so much he can do. And this is something that's built into the system. You mentioned there, is this sustainable or not? It's sustainable as long as you want to keep doing it and believe in it and think that the give is is worth the take or the take is worth the give, whichever way around that works. It's like getting on a roller coaster. Like, don't be afraid of the, of the view when you're at the top because you're about to get the fun bit where you get to go down on the other side and, you know, you can put your hands in the air and shout and scream. It's, you know, don't, it's kind of like that you know don't I, be afraid I think you might be afraid of a different part of a roller coaster than me because i'm not afraid <laughs> of the view i'm afraid of the drop <laughs> I, I to be fair i am i am afraid of roller coasters in general so i don't know what kind of thrill people get out of them i just assumed you creep up and everyone gets a little bit nervous as they go up and then you get the fun part where you drop down and everyone's like you know we and everything like that i don't get that thrill so i suppose i'm the kind of person who would have got it wrong but yeah i maybe got the analogy backwards but you get what i mean you've got to You've got to understand there's certain bits of this which are going to be scary, like the opposition having a two-on-one um, in transition. And if you think that those kind of opportunities, one a game, maybe two, are worth what you're getting on the flip side, aggressive high pressing, high wins, which can become uh, you know, at least three or four decent chances, then it is sustainable because you believe in it. But if it's something which you think is going to be overall detrimental, then it's not sustainable. But like we mentioned last week, I think this is the football that Latanzio absolutely believes in, which he's finally now doing properly. And I think he's going to stick with it. I think he believes this is sustainable. So I don't think this is, uh, I don't think this kind of football is going anywhere. I think it's here to stay. Yeah, I'd agree with it. Or at least I hope it is because I have enjoyed watching it. I'm going to go to another game. I'm going to start in the Nashville because obviously we lose that game or we, we tie that game late on points we should have had. And then we're going to do the same thing again at Nashville. I went on to the post-react, and I have to hold my hand up here and apologize to the listeners. And I, live, I did not see the Nathan Byrne uh, call as a foul. I thought that the guy bought it. I thought that it was not a legitimate foul. I thought that it, Nathan Byrne had done almost nothing wrong. And I have to, you know, take this opportunity on a Wednesday to put my hand up and say, I am taking back my crown for Nathan Byrne. Because... I pointed him out as somebody who really did a good job in that game. And I thought that he got essentially robbed for that penalty. And I went back and I looked at it and Nathan Byrne does a lot of stuff really, really wrong in that, that last minutes of the play. It's, it's bad enough that I am retracting my crown and I am re giving out another card for Nathan Byrne. And we'll talk about it all a little bit later, but I, I, I had to put that at the front so, uh, Ewan, will you do me a favor? When we went in, we said mm, Justin Miram didn't really fit that spot that uh, Diagata left open. I actually like the fact that they put in Kamal Yuzhviak and gave him the chance to go, right? Would you say at this point in time we have enough evidence that Kamal is just a very hot and very cold player? And... 
his ceiling can be quite high, but his floor can be quite low. And sometimes it just doesn't work for the guy. Yeah, I think um, I think we can kind of confidently write the book on on Kamil Yuzviak at this stage as someone who kind is is low floor, high ceiling in terms of on ball stuff. But in in terms of what he can do off ball, he does provide quite a high floor to what he can do, which I think is why a lot of coaches would like him. I think once you put him in there, you understand that he's going to do this upright. He's going to do this in terms of covering the fullback. He's going to move into midfield in the right moments if you want your press to be more compact. He's going to be great at all that. But in terms of on-the-ball stuff, in terms of his actual production, which is the fun stuff for a winger, which people obviously care about and is the most important thing, really, he's a confidence player who we watched be really good earlier in the season when he got a bit of confidence. And now he's come back from you know other players doing well and certain things happening in the team with the players succeeding in his position and he seems less confident he's making basic errors he's you know just simple passes aren't coming off and it gets to the point with that stuff where you have to think that there's something more than just just him not having the technical ability to do things because we've seen it before there has to be something more at play and yeah it's been a, a little bit of a suspicion for a while I feel like that he's a confidence player but the more time we spend with him in the team I feel like that more and more is becoming confirmed, at least in my opinion anyway. Yeah, uh, Josh, we have both talked at length about the fact that Kamil can get on the field and just be a difference maker and change mm-hmm. games and destroy teams and defenses. And then he can do this. You know, I, where are you at with Kamil now? For me, for me, I agree with a lot of what Ewan said. And if you're going to have Kamil and, you, and if he is going to be a big part of the team, in my opinion, you have to fully commit to him. I think we've seen him at his best when he knows he is going to be a starter and when he knows he's going to play a lot of minutes. I He does not strike me as a guy who's a game changer off the bench. Feels like he should be, but I don't think that coming off the bench lets him get into the game like like you want to see from him. Um, and I think the confidence piece is, is the important piece, but I think that that goes hand in hand with him knowing that he's going to to start, he knows that he's going to have a position. I think he needs sort of that baseline. Um, and and I don't want to say that he's not willing to fight for a position. I don't think you come to this point in, as a professional without being willing to fight for a position. Um, but I, I do think that there's something about if you were to tell him that right wing is yours for the next 10 games, I by game five or six, you see the Camille that we always want to see. Um, injuries have been a part of it. I, at the end of the day, I think he's a good player. I think he could be a really good player for, for an MLS squad. He is not a player. I think you can count on both from a fitness perspective and then from a, a confidence perspective. Um, and I, and I think he's someone that when you look, you know, into the coming years, you probably look and say, we're going to need to find someone we can get more consistency from. Yeah, it feel, feels to me like the book is just kind of out on Kamil. And it's sad because I do think that there's a player in there who's, whose ceiling is incredible, is really special level. Uh, but unfortunately, I think we also just now, we've got, we've got enough time that it's not like we've got an eight-game sample size and we're killing him for it. We've seen him. I think we know who he is. And, and that's, that's tough to, to swallow, especially for me, who I think I really enjoyed some of the stuff he did. Uh, I'm going to move along back to you and 
uh, because you and you are a Carol Schwederski fan. And Carol didn't necessarily have his greatest match against Nashville. What went wrong for Carol in there? Do you think? Um, it kind of, it kind of goes back to we obviously previewed uh, this game uh, last week in terms of what we thought could uh, you know the the areas where we could get an advantage, what we predicted would happen. One of the predictions I had was that I felt like Carroll was going to drop quite deep into the first phase build-up, do a lot of that stuff. Um, and that ended up being a massively wrong prediction. That didn't happen all, at all. So <laughs> that's that, that's on me. But at that the same time... objectively false. Yeah, it was it was way, way off. But that's kind of the thing that I watched the game think uh, and was thinking, if, if we were at least getting a little bit of that, I think that would have helped us and also just helped Carol because I think getting him on the ball kind of gets him purring a little bit, gets him more active in, in, in getting, you know, getting wide and, and helps him with his off ball stuff. He's almost like a, it's like a center in basketball that you have to throw the ball to a few times to make sure they don't keep setting screens and doing all that dirty work. Yeah. If he can get Svidersky on the ball in certain areas, get him cooking, then he'll be more willing to do the off ball stuff. And it, it just didn't happen. It ended up with him being quite isolated. Um, and some centre forwards are really good at that stuff. Capetti's a more traditional centre forward in terms of keeping the centre backs narrow, creating space for other players. You know, being that isolated player that might not touch the ball that often, but is doing a lot of work to keep the defence exactly where it needs to be. Um, whereas Carroll isn't that kind of striker, and when he's trying to be that kind of striker, he's always in between other things. He's always drifting out a little bit to so, to help in those areas. So I want to get in with Josh here too, and. Uh, Josh, you had a point to make uh, about the fact that Carroll had a bit of a tough game. Do you want to talk about the fact that the other team sometimes gets to do tactics too? <laughs> yeah, I, I think a lot of what Ewan is saying is, is accurate. I just did want to quickly say he only had 16 touches, according to FB Ref, in 51 minutes. And I do think that you got to get Carroll on the ball early and often for him to be part of that game. Um, but Nashville, it shouldn't be overlooked, is the best defense when it comes to not allowing goals right this is a team and and it's sort of been that way for years now nashville has built a reputation as one of the best defensive teams they hang their hat on it they always seem to have good center backs and defensive players um so i i think we we have to view this game a little bit in that lens too and say maybe he didn't have as much joy um, because it's just a really good defensive team. I think the factors that you and point out are also important, and it's not 100% Nashville, but I think that it, it's probably a, a little bit of that as well. You and any final thought you want to add? Yeah, I just, it, it goes back to, if, if you're going to play this kind of style in this kind of game with the striker doing that, as bold a decision as it may be, you've just got to get the right profile in the right position and probably go with Capetti there it might be tough to manage dressing room wise but you've you've got to play the right players for the right situations if that's what you're going to do so yeah Svidesky just didn't fit that role for that game so speaking of the right players in the right situations I am going to talk Ben Bender uh and the reason I'm going to talk Ben Bender is I'm actually going to I'm going to put a challenge to Ben Bender uh I, I talked him up I was really surprised to see him out there on that right wing uh three games ago and I felt like he did a, a serviceable job. Uh, I think the way we quoted it was the most notable thing about the, the right wing was that it was Ben Bender. It wasn't particularly bad. It wasn't particularly good. He came out uh, in the game against Orlando, and I think he had a really good game. And I think he had a really good game because he was developing. 
right? Not because he roasted his his uh, fullback every time, not because he had every perfect cross, not because he was the game changer, but because I saw him taking the steps to to learn that position and actively put them on the field without fear. And I think we saw a bit of a slide back from Ben Bender in this one. And I I want to put this out here that I will be less happy if Ben Bender continues that position and never loses the ball. Right? I will be more happy if Ben Bender continues that position and takes on his defender over and over and over again and loses the ball 50% of the time and everybody's yelling at him and everybody's like, you know, the reaction is you're giving up, plays are dying with you. Ben Bender's not a winger. If he's ever going to become a winger or if he's ever going to learn the skills to, to go out and attack a player, drive at a player, use both feet, and especially separate space, which I think he really struggles with. He struggles with getting that, that yard and a half of space between him and the guy he's trying to beat. If he's ever going to learn that, he has to go do it. And in this game, I really didn't like that he kind of avoided it. There were a couple times where he did, he did go after it, and it has been confirmed by Charlotte FC that Christian uh, Fuchs is actually helping teach Ben Bender how to drive at a fullback. I, I want to see him if he's going to take up that space. And keep in mind, anytime you develop, there's a step forward and two steps back and all that stuff. But I want to see him if he's going to take up that space. He's not going to be a killer right now. So I want to see him go learn. I don't want to see him get shy and, and not do the learning. Uh, because I think he'll be forgiven for learning. I don't think he'll be forgiven for being absent. Uh, anybody want to chime in on Bender there? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm just a quick point in terms of Bender not being a winger but playing on the wing. Um, we're we're playing more often with uh, with with players who aren't wingers on the wings. Um, De Jagra is on the left um, in the in the game against Orlando. Ben Bender keeping his spot on the right um, for the last few games, like you mentioned. It almost feels like it's in you know an intentional thing, and I think the reason why it might be intentional at the or the intention behind it. Is is ball retention? I think uh, Latanzio trusts those guys as players who are safe with the ball, knowing that the way that we're built is so open to uh, being, you know, having issues with defending transition. I think he's maybe playing a little bit safe with the wings, and knowing that other players are playing high up, we just need to emphasize ball retention. So I think just as a general point, tactics wise, as to why those selections are happening, that's my that's my opinion on why they've been happening. All right, I'm going to stick with you because Scott Arfield is uh, steadily becoming an outside-of-the-box killer. He's becoming someone who can and will take a shot from range and now not just won't you know put it towards the goal, but is capable of delivering actual deadly shots into corners. From a tactics perspective, what happens to a defense when a team has somebody who is proven that the, the other team knows he can hurt you from outside the box? Um, yeah, I think if, if you get someone who's got a real reputation of being able to cause problems, whether that be scoring or you know, meaning that the goalkeeper is going to have to palm it away and then you get rebounds off the back of that, you defend a little differently. Because one of the trends in football over the last few years is the invitation of long shots. It's almost the the next stage after a, a couple of years before that, teams being like, oh, let's stop shooting from range because apparently they're low, they're, they're low percentage opportunities their ways to give away the ball so let's stop doing them and then the development off the back of that is okay why not defensively why don't we just kind of open things up a little bit and invite these long shots 
if we're not going to take them ourselves because we think they're not very useful, let's invite them on the opposite. Let's invite the opposition to take them as well. So there's major adjustments when you get someone who really can punish you from range. You start playing a bit more direct in in terms of ten yards off. You'll you'll care less about a marker by your side, and you'll be more likely to approach uh, a player rather than kind of stay with your man if there's going to be rebounds or anything like that. And that can create some exciting things off the back of that because if you've got if you want to get creative with it, you can have players leading into shoot and then just play a little clip ball over the top. You can have it be something where the defender comes in and covers for their man and then you play it out wide and get a two-on-one. So there's definitely tactical stuff off the back of this uh, that could be exciting. I think it might take a little bit more uh, of our field causing uh, some some damage from range before that kind of stuff happens. It might take another goal or two. But it's certainly on its way because this is a really good goal. It struck at a really good height and, yeah, not many keepers are going to save this. Yeah, uh, it was an impressive shot from him from a difficult situation. Josh... Obviously, we go up again. We have something like 84 seconds left in the game. And it's not just the bad moment that we'll talk about. Really, from that moment on, we were just always on the back foot. And I have to ask you the sad question. Is Charlotte FC a a team that turns off? I think so. It, It kind of feels a little Groundhog Day every game. I feel like... I, I can't remember the last time I watched this team with a lead and thought, yeah, you know what? I feel confident we're going to see this out, that we're not going to end up losing a couple points on here. Um, I know a lot. there's been a lot of complaints about the amount of time that was given in stoppage. Um, me personally, I was fine with it. We had a goal in there. We had a celebration. I don't think that there was any anything egregious with that. I just feel like this team can become passive in these moments and rather than trying to truly see a game out they're trying to wait for the game to end and that's what it felt like with this is that we felt like hey we've stopped Haney all game right and he's half their team and so as long as we do that for another 30 seconds it's fine but it wasn't Haney who ended up getting that penalty right and so um I think it's a it's a problem it's not something that is unique to Charlotte. There's a lot of teams who I think get into similar situations and do similar things, but it's something that I would like to see us quickly stop doing. I, I think, unfortunately, this is a team that turns off, and I don't know how that mentality exists in professional teams. I don't know how you'd undo it. I, I don't know how you uproot that mentality, uh, but it's, it's starting to become something that other teams can bet on other teams can be down to Charlotte FC and they'll go, don't worry, boys, it's Charlotte FC. We're probably going to get one in the 90th plus six. And that's never a good mentality when you're up one goal. Uh, I'm going to talk about Nathan Byrne a little bit more, and I'm going to have a fairly hot take here, and that is Nathan Byrne is just done for me. I'm done with Nathan Byrne. Uh, and that's not to say I never want, him see, never want to see him play for Charlotte FC again. When I went back and I watched this again, you know, in my in my post react, I thought that he kind of got the bad side of the deal and it wasn't really a penalty. And if you look at it again, you look at it with the camera facing where you can see Nathan Burns face, you know, from Kalina's perspective, there are a couple of things that happen in a row that are just awful. Uh, one of them is when the play starts to develop, Nathan Byrne checks where his other defenders are. So he knows where Andrew Privet is. He knows where Adilson Milanda are, and he knows they are both there to support him. 
you can actively see him clocking those two players in the same line. And when he runs back and he misreads the ball, one, and I owe a, a, a moment of appreciation to Josh for this one because he pointed it out and said it much better than I did. One, he plays the man, not the ball. This is the experienced older guy in the team who should be able to deal with high pressure situations. He is the experience. That's his thing. That's, that's all that's left for Nathan Byrne. And when the moment is the heaviest, when the pressure is on, he plays the man, not the ball. And then when the ball doesn't bounce the way he thinks it will, he panics. And this isn't the first time we've seen Nathan Byrne panic. Everybody panics. I panic. Ask Josh earlier today, I panicked when I got an unexpected cell phone call, right? I, I, I can't kill someone for panicking once, but this is a very good defender who panics three or four times a game. And over the course of this season, we have not seen him play very good. I liken him to, uh, uh, I can't say his name well, Mustafi, who used to play for Arsenal. He is a player who, as a whole, if you take out his horrible moments, is actually pretty good. He is just going to absolutely collapse your team and your game twice, twi twice a game. And in this time when all the pressure was on and it fell to the guy who should have been the experience, it's not just that he makes the mistakes coming in. It's that when that guy goes past him, even though he knows Adilson Melanda and Andrew Privet are right there, he still very clearly from the other direction grabs that guy's arm in what is a complete obvious and true foul and drags him to the ground inside of the box if you are a 26 year old defender at that point in time i would still expect you to let the guy try and take the 1v1 at christian kalina right anything is better than a penalty at the final dying moments of the game and and this was just the one that ticked it over for me and i'm just done with nathan Byrne. uh josh i know that you want to to talk about the fact that nathan Byrne might not have needed to be in this position uh so do you want do you want to talk about that or do you want any say on Nathan Byrne? I would like to talk about Christian Kalina in this moment because we we had a little bit of of back and forth about this. With this particular goal, I, I think I was convinced by Logan that Nathan Byrne is culpable. My frustration does lie when you go and watch this. I think quicker, more athletic, and just better goalkeepers do not let Nathan Byrne deal with this ball. Instead, they go out and get it. Um, this ball is looped, in my opinion, fairly slowly into the into the box. Kalina is backtracking from around when the ball is kicked from around the penalty spot. It's a frustration, and, and maybe this is just me being overly harsh on goalkeepers. I have been known to do that, but I would really have preferred Kalina to have said. If we lose this game, we're losing it because I made a mistake and go out and try to claim that ball. We just saw in Orlando when he didn't go and claim a ball and he let it fall that they scored a goal. We've seen now for a year the mistakes that this defense and in particular Nathan Byrne can make. Um, it might be overly harsh, but I want a keeper who goes and tries to punch that ball or better yet grab it because I think a better keeper can and would do that. I think the best keepers in this league can and would do that. And then this game would be three points instead of one. So I, I want to come with something that literally just hit my brain. 
because not that long ago, I said, I think Christian Kalina is about as good a keeper as you're going to get in the MLS. And over the past three games, and not, not that he's the best keeper, that he is a, a decent level keeper for the MLS. And over the past three games, I've been getting increasingly frustrated with his inability to be aggressive, to defend aggressively. And I, I, I had to sit and think about why that might be. And it's because we're now playing a team where you have to defend aggressively. Before we were playing in a way where being a shot stopper was the thing, right? If you were a good shot stopper, it functioned. Now we are playing in a way where you have to be able to be a front-footed, aggressive, protect your backline keeper. And if you cannot do that, things are going to go wrong. And I think with that clear style switch, the scale has tipped. Whereas before I said, eh, he's doing the primary thing well enough, and I don't think you're going to find somebody significantly better than him at this other thing. I don't have a problem with him. The scale is tipped now, and I'm starting to have a problem. I don't think he, you can look at this moment for me and say, this is Christian Kalina's fault. I do think you can look at this moment and say, if Christian Kalina was a more aggressive front-footed keeper, Nathan Byrne is not in that situation, and, and we win this game. Um, you and... I know we kind of we kind of cut you out of that one, buddy. Uh, do you want to get in here? Have any, have any thoughts on this before we wrap it up? Yeah, no, I'll just mention kind of two things on it. I think in terms of Nathan Byrne, um, I think he gets a little bit unlucky with the bounce. It's a weird bounce. Um, and in kind of true um, Ewan fashion, I did a deep dive on whether it's like grass or turf or some kind of varied hybrid version of grass or turf that they use at that stadium. And it's so it's i think it's some kind of strange grass that they've got going on there but that's by the by that's just going back to <laughs> throwback things there but yeah it's a weird bounce um and it kind of catches him off guard because he's very aware of what's going on he's checking either side of his shoulder i think he and yeah i think the bounce just catches him off and he gets a little bit unlucky i do think he was generally pretty good in both the games that we've talked about on this pod um i think he did a decent job in both so i'm i'm not as out on him as uh as you are, Logan, but I, I understand the frustration with it. Uh, and on the Kalina point, yeah, it's just kind of something that we've been speaking about for a while. The traditional shot stopper versus can you do everything else? Can you prevent, you know, the preventing of a chance happening versus the saving of a shot that comes from a chance? How do you calculate the value of that? There'll be better people than me to actually know which bits are, are more valuable in certain situations. But it's certainly becoming a talking point now um, amongst most of the fan bases too. We know that this guy can pull out great uh, saves at any moment. It's been great in shootouts. But yeah, there's just there's a yin and yang that has to even out at some stage. So I, I have a wild idea I'm going to throw at you now that this podcast is already well over the time we expect. Um, <laughs> we have a guy who is very front-footed, who is defensively minded, who likes to be aggressive and cut out defensive plays. And if we're going to be a team where they don't need to really block shots anyway, let's just put Guzman Carujo in the goal and see what happens. Yes, done. <laughs> solved it. <laughs> Congratulations. We have solved football. Um, Ewan, does that get your stamp of approval? Um, yeah, I might like him there better than I like him at center back. So let's do it. <laughs> All right. Uh, I love that we really bookended this with like, just the, like, we put real interesting tactical analysis in there, but we bookended it on both sides with just chaos. <laughs> nice. uh, and, and that's kind of become our vibe. Uh, we hope that you like it. Uh, we are going to go ahead and wrap it up. So I will say thank you to Ewan. 
Thank you. Always a pleasure. And thank you to Josh. Yes, yes. Let's do it again next week, guys. And most importantly, thank you to you, our lovely, lovely listeners. If you have decided to spend your time with us, we love you. We do mean it when we say it. If you want to find us online, you can find us on Instagram at the underscore crown underscore cast on X at the underscore crown cast. And uh, that's it, baby. We will talk to you again next Wednesday because we don't have a game this weekend where we will be making stuff up to talk about and uh, breaking down how we are going to get our next three points from DC. Goodbye. QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. dot com.